Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Dementia Researcher podcast, where we discuss careers, science and research. I'm Dr. Oz Ismail. I am a postdoc at Oregon Health and Science University, and it is my pleasure to be back again as a guest host for this week's show, where we'll be discussing the support networks for minoritized scientists. I am joined by three fantastic early career researchers who are all playing an important part in not only championing Black researchers in STEM, but who have all gone further and got involved in a very practical way in delivering support working to help diversify research, delivering systems, events, networks, and building communities that empower the people within it. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Yolanda Ahini from the University of Manchester, Victor Akuta from MIT, and Caitlin Coronalong from John Hopkins University. Hello everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Maybe we could go around and introduce ourselves. Let's start with Yolanda. Oh, hi, Oz. Nice to see you again. Um, yes, I'm Yolanda Heaney, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Manchester. So my research focuses on developing MRI techniques to look at the brain and specifically looking at um, different models of Alzheimer's disease and um, how the new MRI techniques can, um, can detect um, water exchange across the blood-brain barrier. Oh, and it's good to see you too. Uh, Yolanda and I go way back. We did our PhD in the same lab. Uh, next, I'll come to Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Victor Kakuda, current uh, healthcare innovation fellow at MIT. Uh, in the past, I previously worked on a project looking at vesicle trafficking proteins as potential uh, biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, and good to see you too. Uh, I met Victor not long ago at uh, AIC Neuroscience Next, where you were one of the winners of our One to Watch Award. Uh, and uh, Caitlin, let's come on to you now. Yeah, um, hi, I'm Caitlin Krumalong. Um, I'm currently at Johns Hopkins University uh, studying uh, the structural, fluid, functional biomarkers of amnestic mild cognitive impairment, which is an early stage of, uh, or one of the earliest stages of um, Alzheimer's disease dementia. Um, previously, I was at the University of Oregon for my undergrad, uh, which is two hours south of where you are, Oz. Um, and yeah, yeah, I'm just happy to be here. And it's good to see you too, Caitlin. And I worked on uh, AIC Neuroscience Next behind the scenes. And uh, I think I first met you when you did one of those I start journal clubs, which I absolutely enjoyed. Um, so I know uh, you're all doing such fantastic science, but I also know that behind, uh, behind the scenes or outside of the lab, you're all doing various kinds of outreach work to help uh, improve the face of science and neuroscience. So uh, can you tell us a bit more about those initiatives to begin with? Let's start with Caitlin. At the university level, I was, I don't think it, we're still together anymore, but I was on the um, graduate uh, LGBTQ um, outreach panel or advisory board um, in which I worked on developing um, surveys to disseminate to the uh, general Hopkins graduate and postdoctoral population to assess um, our needs as LGBTQ graduate students, to assess um, 
what kind of programming we could have. Other colleagues on the board with me uh, worked on how we can educate nurses and doctors at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, and so I think we're taking a break for this term at least, but um, that's one area of outreach that I've been involved in. And then another one is just uh, getting to work in various capacities with the Alzheimer's Association, as, uh, which is where I met Oz. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that after I wind down my PhD, I'll be able to do more outreach um, with organizations like Black and Neuro. That, that'd be a, that's a goal of mine. <laughs> cool, and uh, how about you, Yolanda? Um, so I suppose while I was a PhD student with you, Oz, we, we started the, um, the Minorities in STEM, a network in the UK to kind of connect, support and showcase people from ethnic minority backgrounds um, within STEM fields. Um, and through that, we had the Twitter, uh, we have the Twitter um, handle where um, different people over the years have, have curated the, the page um, for a week. And we also ran um, a couple of minorities in STEM symposia um, to kind of support or understand or get a little bit of insight into how on earth you navigate an academic career. Um, but alongside that, we wanted to also provide sort of um, workshops to build skills um, in, in the STEM field. So skills in writing, skills in um, outreach, in public engagement. Um, so um, that all came together um, a few years ago. And then um, also I'm, I actually was, I, I'm trained as a physicist. And so um, I was at Imperial College London to do my undergraduate. And so every year there's probably one, one or zero black people who are in the physics department in physics. And so over the years, we, we always met up to have a little informal powwow, little, little meal. And um, actually when they, when we used to do this, the, they used to call themselves the Blackett Boys because the lab that we, we were, um, the, the building was called the Blackett Laboratory for Physics. And um, so I was perhaps the first female who joined them and I was like, you can't call it this anymore. So um, <laughs> over the years, it, it, it kind of has, has morphed now into the Blackett Lab family. Um, which has kind of gone public facing in the last the last year. So they're a community in, interest group. Um, and so also to support um, black people who um, would like to follow um, a, a physics pathway um, in, and, and beyond really. So um, that, that's been ongoing for the last, well, it's been, it's been in, in the background for many, many years, but um, it's kind of been more public facing um, for the, uh, the last year and a half. Awesome, that all sounds really cool. And I have so much to ask you about all that, uh, but let me come to Victor. I know from uh, talking to you at AIC Neuroscience Next during your uh, award that you're involved in so many different initiatives as well. So, certainly, um, so I've been, really involved with the MIT Office of Engineering Outreach Programs, which kind of runs uh, science enrichment from, for students from middle school and high school. Um, I've helped to teach some classes in neuroscience, uh, most recently teaching a class on kind of Alzheimer's disease and, and innovation. And it's pretty 
Uh, it's pretty incredible to see what these kids come up with, you know, different ways to potentially treat Alzheimer's disease. Um, pretty, you know, pretty creative kids. So that's been, I'd say, probably one of my favorite outreach experiences. Uh, outside of that, I helped, um, I was one of the co-organizers for the inaugural Black and Data uh, conference last year, which is an amazing opportunity just to see um, just the amazing amount of talent uh, in the Black community for coming up with different data visualizations. And um, it's great to see that still going on this year. And then I've also been involved with the Student National Medical Association, which is the um, largest organization for uh, medical students of color, uh, helping to you know, develop some research forums where people have an opportunity to you know, present their research and practice um, you know, different skills and serve as a judge for that. So it's been yeah, really awesome to do those opportunities. It's always something that you know, inspires me to keep you know, staying involved in this field and just seeing more people of color enter um, you know, the field of science. It's been really amazing. That's really awesome. And I um, particularly, uh, since you talked about uh, Black and STEM and uh, Caitlin, you mentioned uh, Black and Neuro as well, and social media movements like this, like Black and Neuro, Black and Data, Black and STEM, uh, I guess they really started in the, the US and then over the last uh, couple of years have quickly taken uh, taken hold across the world. Uh, what has what has your uh, views on this been, particularly over the last couple of years? I mean, I think for me, it, it's, it's been incredible to see um, how much traction and how much um, um, how much it's moved forwards in the last couple of years and I think um, what I've been really like heartened by is kind of the um, the different kind of the, we the different weeks like black in physics or black in neuro um, the different things that they're, they're offering so beyond um, just kind of like the normal academic stuff that you see I think that it's really pulled together different ideas for um, like the, the interfaces between both careers and also um, and also just hobbies as well, like seeing like the different um, like using Gather Town and having a rave there kind of thing mm -hmm. has I think that's been quite nice to see what like the the innovation of these of these um, networks. That's what I've been heartened by. Yeah, I totally agree, and um, in particular. Um as you mentioned Yolanda when we uh, we did those minority and stem symposia one thing that I learned was that there was um so these symposia just to give the audience an idea um were events that were organized to create specific spaces that were tailored uh to minoritized scientists to black and brown scientists who typically would not have an opportunity to do things like uh, attend uh, public engagement workshops uh, or uh, have someone specifically talk about an academic career in uh, framed in, in the way that is relevant to their experience right and um, and there are many reasons for this a, the main one being there's such so few uh, so few scientists of color who do make it to the top and so they don't see themselves represented but also things like when training workshops are put on they are framed uh, in uh, typically in a, a from a white perspective it's seen from a white lens and so students will may not feel comfortable in those spaces um and so uh, i'm interested particularly in, from, in what victor you said about how you mentor uh, high school and middle school kids because that seems to be quite important in like um a just training people 
and preparing them for this experience, but also showing them that it is a, it's a viable part for them that they can survive in. You know, when you look at the data, it shows that uh, students of color enter with having an interest in science at the same rates, yet they end up leaving science at like two or three times um, the rate. And so you're really getting uh, you know, connected with kids at an early age and, you know, showing them that they can not only science, but, it, it, you know, encouraging them when, you know, they may experience setbacks or failures to know that they can keep going and pushing through. I think it's something that's really important and um, I find a lot of value in. And the other thing I tell my kids is that um, one of the things I love so much about mentoring them is the fact that uh, they're still young and, and everything in the world seems possible. Um, they're not yet jaded about what they can't do. And so it's always exciting to hear just their, you know, out of the box ideas about what they can do next in science. So I think that's, you know, it's a really wonderful opportunity. That's so, so fantastic. Um, I do also want to touch on something uh, that you said, Caitlin. So I know like you were also involved in so many different initiatives uh, and you mentioned how you want to be more involved in things like Black Neuro once you finish grad school. And that highlights to me the burden it places on all, all of you on this panel to be doing this work on top of your day jobs or, or your grad school uh, responsibilities. And that is often, uh, and I can personally attest to this as well, is often um, not seen or like, or if it is seen, seen as um, extracurricular and not a core part of your day job. Do you think uh, that is changing? Uh, and maybe I could come to you, Caitlin, first. What are your, what are your views or how do you see it at, at this present time? Yeah, so I definitely see, still see, uh, well, I observe that the perception of diversity outreach um, or any kind of diversity related initiatives is still seen by academics as an extracurricular um, area of focus that people can do on the side, but it shouldn't be their focus. And as such, even if we, the people that do the work, view it as a full-time job, um, we can't, and I speak for myself, can't juggle having that full-time job in addition to having a full-time research thing, because oftentimes, you know, the environment in these academic environments doesn't allow those two to coexist. So it's either, you know, I'd had conversations between uh, one really good friend of mine and who's also black, and she mentioned she, uh, that you should do diversity work, but don't make it so that you're actually, you know, stressing yourself out, losing income um, by through all, like in terms of calculating all the hours you put into academics, diversity and research included. Um, and also make sure that you're not the only one doing the work. Um, I am one of two black people in my department. Um, and this friend was one of um, a few black people in her department. And we often notice that the burden often falls on us. Um, so she really sat me down and she's a few years ahead of me. And she was like, yeah, you need to, you know, do what you need to do to graduate and then move on. Um, and diversity work is great, but also you shouldn't be the one to have to do all the emotional labor in doing so. And so um, that being said, I, you know, have a desire to get more involved, um, but it's, you know, currently not compatible with um, my research goals and what's expected of me. So it's bittersweet. I hope it gets better. I hope that um, with the advent of 
all these different Black in X initiatives that uh, it raises awareness to what Black scientists do um, day in and day out to improve outcomes for not only Black students, but um, students of all identities. Uh, so I'm hoping that it becomes more recognized, more accepted, um, and that academics, particularly those who've been here for a while, uh, recognize the role that diversity needs to play um, or the focus that absolutely needs to be put on diversity. Absolutely. And uh, one thing you said there was that it is it, it is a lot of work and recognizing that it is um, work means that it is your time and time is valuable. Oh, Skills so are valuable. So it is, um, again, in my experience, sometimes it's not seen as work or skills. And it um, typically, a lot of this work, it does fall upon the minoritized uh, trainees to do this work for no pay, for, for the most part. Um, Yolanda, Victor, do you have anything to, to add to um, how you've experienced this type of work? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've got quite like lots of lots of things have come up there um, Caitlin from from what you were saying I think um I think the first thing is to recognize that it does cause for me personally it causes a lot of conflict internal conflict for how to balance that time and because I'm, I'm passionate about um trying to improve things and um the kind of the the, the work that I can do and I do and I also enjoy I enjoy um I enjoy participating in sort of like diversity inclusion outreach um, events, but um, I think that we have to recognize that like burnout is really real. And um, if you take on too much of the burden, it can be, it can be, it can be doubly damaging because it's, you know, as a minoritized scientist, you're already kind of fe maybe feeling more extreme emotions about academia in general, plus the extra work so it really is um like I, I, as I've moved um from a PhD student to being a postdoc I've thought a lot more carefully about what what I can put in and um being a bit more strategic about um what I'll be involved with or what I won't um so it's but it's always it's always a bit of a of a balancing act and I think yeah you do get I think you, there, there is a lot that's, that you can get out of it but then also the um sort of like the emotional um burden is something that you like to look out for and to not not don't suffer doing it that's that's the that's the main thing there's people whose jobs are are <laughs> um precisely for for that kind of work and it's kind of just a bit extra for us absolutely and um that that emotional that emotional toll it takes is so real. I mean, as a, at baseline, graduate school or like school in general is very stressful, um, and then when you add uh, these additional layers on, it just it just snowballs. And also, the, the additional thing that always comes to my mind is the academy as a system is built on you know of of a white perspective it is like built for a white man historically and so there are so and so everything that comes under it like even the definition of what professionalism is comes under all of these brackets and so the pressures to conform to this 
particularly in academia, even down to the way you speak in academia, right? Is 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 all those little things on an everyday basis that can like chip away at people who are doing this type of work. So, Victor, I wonder if, like, especially since you work with with the younger uh, people, does, do you think do you think it's a good way to change that, or do you think it's already changing in terms of how it's framed? Yeah, no, I think you uh, raise a, a good point. I think um, there's changes are slowly being made into um, how this work is viewed. I know that some universities are starting to try to take account take this kind into account for like tenure review. So changes slowly being made, but I think there definitely needs to be more of a push and like, you know, Caitlin Yolanda spoke to just, you know, this kind of tension that exists for minority scientists trying to balance, you know, um, pursuing the traditional um, measures of, of, of achievement, you know, along with this work, that's something that needs to be recognized and, and also, um, you know, valued as well. So um, if we think about, so the way I, I think about it is that the, the way to make uh, this, the way to induce some kind of change would be to make this everybody's responsibility, right? And how do you do that? As there are some people who will get on board because it is the right thing to do to want a more equal society. But really, ultimately, academics are driven by um, like the ability to get grants and the ability to get funding and the ability to publish. How do we get, how do we build that, build equity into these these existing systems any thoughts from anyone on the panel yeah i uh i think the first step to achieving equity is recognizing that as of now diversity work inherently relies on the lived experiences of the people in the room um and while that is i i think that you know we should yield to people's lived experiences above everything else but oftentimes um there are lots of power dynamics at play in which it's usually as we talked about before usually the minoritized grad students who have to share their lived experiences and possibly re-traumatize themselves and so um i don't think this is the end-all be-all of achieving equity but i do think that um academics uh like those who've been tenured for years and years and years need to realize that diversity work is in itself a field um, of study and it's a field of that there are numerous professionals in and so for me um i think the first step to doing that is actually having people who are professionals who are trained to you know do diversity work and you know do cultural competency trainings and stuff come in um and that people who would be compensated for their labor and then from there perhaps creating structures that would allow, you know, the experiences of people in the department to be shared in such a way that it doesn't unnecessarily out them or anything like that of any kind of experience um, or, you know, place a lot of emotional labor on them. So normally I wouldn't say this for anything else, but, you know, the I think that in order to achieve equity, we need to have at some level, at least on a department level, have people come in whose jobs are to establish equity. Um, and then, then I think perhaps maybe, and this is maybe this is too hopeful, but then we can rely on the experiences of people in the department or, you know, have them have the be amplified. 
Right, I, I absolutely agree, and especially if it's built into if it's built into the academic system in a way that uh, senior people who are already going through this system have to think about it in equal measure to how when they're thinking about publications and grants, um, that will that will hopefully trickle down to how they train their students, the spaces they allow their students to be in, and um, the ways in which uh, the students. Um, can succeed. Um, Victor, do you have um, any further thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I very much agree with uh, Caitlin with the idea that this is, you know, it's a, this, this is something that requires a, lot of, a large amount of work. So having someone there whose um, sort of main responsibility is to help to drive some of that initiative definitely helps to, you know, spread around some of the, of the labor. Um, I think another um, important um, Thing that could be done again is just to add this into the general uh, review, whether that's for tenure, just to have this as like a specific section that is something that's being, you know, evaluated and scored. This should be happening automatically um, when people are, you know, reviewing people for promotion and stuff because it's, it's important work. Um, it's important to the university. Um, it's important to so its ability to, you know, continue to innovate and develop new things to have a, a diverse, um, you know, a diverse body. So I think building it into that mechanism is something that could go a long way as well. Now, one thing I also think about when um, thinking about my own science is the way uh, when we talk so much about, on one hand, we talk about the disparities that exist within the people who are doing the science, but there's also disparities that exist in the science that is being done as well. And they do kind of go hand in hand, right? Because the, historically, if all the all the research questions have been asked uh, from a, through a white lens, then of course there's going to be uh, that's that those systemic inequities are going to translate down to uh, who who we study, how we study them, and how we uh, the result how we view results as well. And we know, for example, in, in dementia research, especially, uh, there are so many disparities from um, the way uh, comparing uh, the way black men are diagnosed uh, with dementia compared to white men, uh, looking at how South Asian pop populations are given a diagnosis because there are no culturally sensitive approaches to doing this, uh, and uh, the many disparities that exist between um, men and women. So, um, but also, I sometimes I, I go down a complete wormhole thinking about this because I'm like, well, we've thought about this from such a um, socially constructed perspective, how do we undo that? Because now there are real questions that we do need to, we do need to categorize some questions based on identity, based on race or stuff like that. But then we also can't just dig ourselves deeper into defining these uh, disparities in this way if we are to get out of them. How, 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 do, you, how do you folks uh, kind of approach that if you do? I think for me, um, I think recognizing that like science is is political and you can't um, you can't unpick it, it sometimes I feel that it think it, it, it deems itself as kind of div like not connected to who like the systems in which we've created. And so I think recognizing that is like the first the first step. And I think it's like, it's quite hard to do and I, th I think thinking about um, 
how especially when you get to things that when you get to the ideas that are more um physical and mathematical um it, it gets a bit more abstract but never forgetting that kind of the people are driving the research and so having these having a more like as the most holistic way of viewing uh, research questions i think is uh, is the way is a way forward to consider that there's many aspects in which can be influencing the work that we're that we're doing anyone else any thoughts on that um i have some thoughts with a uh, researcher who is more clinician not a clinician um, patient facing although i don't interact with patients um and one thing that comes up to me when considering research in general particularly dementia research is how we as researchers perpetuate medical racism um, and ways in which, uh, you know, even the structures that we use to, you know, pay our subjects and participants or the burdens placed on them um, contributes to an underrepresentation of these populations in, uh, in medical research. Uh, and so it's something that I think is not only a you know, basic science kind of viewpoint, like, or even a statistical thing, but it's also an ethics question of, you know, how I can increase the population of a certain, you know, race of, or um, nationality of people, um, but what are we introducing um, that could be traumatic long-term? What are we introducing that is inherently inequitable? Um, and I think more, effort needs to be put into understanding like culturally sensitive ways of um, conducting research uh, at the bare minimum. Uh, because ultimately, you know, if we, like you brought up Oz, if we can't recruit people to get an idea of what is or isn't culturally sensitive, then our treatments will end up being culturally insensitive and racist. Um, and so it's, it's really a pipeline thing. And it's, I, that's not something that I would have thought, you know, getting in, but being both a patient and a researcher, it's becoming glaringly obvious just how much of this is like a, a leaky pipeline issue um, and an ethics issue at its core. Yeah, I, I also think about it from the, from perpetuating uh, uh, medical racism uh, as well, because there are all these important questions uh, and to address in terms of disparities that exist in the research but now if anything now is the time to also reframe those questions say here is the problem this is the disparity but the problem and the problem cannot be framed from that from the perspective of that disparity because there are so many more socioeconomic political things that go on underneath it so when you analyze your data you need to somehow remove the categorization because otherwise you're just going to be defining it, defining it as, for example, white people respond to it like this and black people respond to it like this. And so, and then since we cannot escape this capitalistic society we live in, um, drugs are going to be tailored in that way. And that's just going to further propagate these inequities that exist in medicine. Um, yeah, I just, I, I spend so much time thinking about this and never, <laughs> never having a solution because it's such a such a deep rooted problem. Um, I'll allow somebody else to add before I go into my rambling thoughts on, <laughs> on medical racism. 
Well, I actually wanted to do a quick follow-up. Um, it's really interesting, particularly being in Baltimore, because the Black population in Baltimore is in, uh, particularly mistrustful of, um, you know, the structures that exist um, through various, you know, science and medicine, simply because Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, has a history of exploiting Black patients. Um, and so it's really interesting to see um, the research that is going in from a researcher side, so from colleagues that looks into these disparities, particularly in Black populations, because the trauma is just so present. Um, but it's also interesting to look at it from the perspective of being a Black person in Baltimore, um, who is similarly, I would also, if I was not a researcher, I would also be skeptical of the institution that I work for, just simply because, you know, it's, it's deep rooted and it's systemic. Um, so yeah, just kind of adding on to, to what you're saying. Uh, yeah, and that kind of um, also speaks to the, the need for like community building between like sci scientists and researchers need to be better at like listening to these communities rather than telling communities what they need because I don't know that that's the, that's a, that's the way you're going to ever going to build trust, right? So I wonder if uh, Victor Yolanda, whether you had any like experiences or thoughts on how we can uh, build trust amongst communities or like uh, do some community building amongst amongst scientists and researchers and sort of the public that we are supposed to be serving. I'll chime in for that. I think uh, one important way we can do that is really to involve the community in the work that we're doing. Uh, and when, when we're thinking about research questions, uh, we want to ask to, you know, to see how particular problems affecting the community, we should have members from that community, you know, being part, not just part of the research, but helping to think about the questions we're asking, or even when we have findings, like what those findings could actually mean. I think so, sometimes we have, you know, there's this big gap between the science and then the public. And, you know, we communicate in our, you know, sort of from our ivory tower about what the science is without really involving the public in what we're doing and what that the implications that has for them. So I think, you know, more um, outreach and communi uh, communication with the community would help to, you know, bridge some of that gap and increase trust to be a little bit more transparent. Yeah, I think just to kind of add on to kind of the, the outreach side of things, I think this is like, it's moving towards like public engagement, isn't it? And creating, um, community building where it's um, as a researcher you're able to get something from um, the audience that you're speaking to but then the audience and the people involved will also give you something and I think that that's actually really difficult to do as like I, I, I feel that um, quite often as a, as a PhD student or a, a researcher thinking about uh, doing outreach it's like okay we'll go into a school and we'll just talk to them um, but trying to embed this kind of two-way communication I think would, is, 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 is difficult but also necessary to, for us to better understand where people are at with research in general um, and I think you, sometimes as well being uh, as, a, as a researcher coming back down and thinking actually starting from a point of like you, you perhaps don't know where the public where where the public are at with the research that you're doing so gleaning information that way I think is really I think really crucial I totally 
agree with all of what all of you said. Um, I could talk to all three of you for hours on this, but we are coming to the end uh, of our episode today. So what I would like to ask all of you before we wrap up is I'm sure um, there could be people who listen to this podcast who are doing dementia research who are thinking, uh, well, yes, I agree with this problem. Yes, uh, disparities exist but uh, either I am too junior to solve this problem or my research question doesn't address any disparities. What would you, uh, and I'll come to each of you, what would you say to that? Would you agree or would you, do you think they have a, that everyone has a role to play in some parts of these problems that we've talked about? Um, would someone like to go first? I don't wanna like put someone on the spot in case you're still thinking about it. I would, I, I'm happy to jump in first, just to say that I think with, building equity is definitely everyone's everyone's prob problem and um everyone has a role to play in it because and i think it's the difficulty is that um is that if you think that perhaps you haven't got a role then you're probably the ones with the most power and have got the most perhaps that you're able to give to um making things um a bit more uh, equal so I think that's probably quite quite hard to come from that well I say quite hard I mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean in the sense of of course you might not have considered but if you think that then I think you probably have got the most work to be doing and to mm. be understanding how you can build that into the research that you're the research that that you're doing. Victor can I come to you next? Uh, sure um, I would say that everybody um, has a role like at, at the end of the day you, you all use or, or disparities that we see um, raising attention that that is uh, an important role and one that helps to push things forward as well so and Caitlin your thoughts yeah I think that I agree with, with both of you um, I think that everyone has a role to play and Yolanda, I particularly agree with you in that if someone doesn't know that they have a role to play, then they definitely have a role to play. Um, one actionable thing that I can think of is um, cite Black scholars, collaborate with Black scientists in a way that they are properly uh, recognized for their work um, and also hire Black scientists, recruit um, from, at least in the United States, recruit from historically black colleges and universities. Um, I don't know what similar institutions, if any, exist in the UK, but um, really try and, you know, incorporate the amazing work that black scientists produce um, into your research and learn from them, um, collaborate with them all of that so that's that's I think the bare minimum of what scientists mm -hmm. can do um just you know incorporate black scientists into their into your scientific method thank you so much everyone I feel so uh, energized and inspired after having talked to all of you sadly uh, it's time for us to say goodbye uh, thank you to our guests Dr Yolanda Heaney, Victor Akuta and Caitlin Coronalong uh, we have profiles on all of today's panelists on the website, uh, including details of their Twitter account. So take a look, give them a follow. Uh, please also remember to like and subscribe in whatever app you're listening in. And remember to subscribe to our uh, weekly bulletin as well. 
Uh, my name's Oz. It's been a pleasure hosting uh, this podcast again and uh, see you all very soon. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.